Welcome to the last session of the Philippines in Focus seminar series for the year organized by the Philippines Australia Forum at La Trobe. And so today we'll be exploring the topic surrounding contingent breadwinners, precarious livelihoods of left behind family members of Filipino victims of trafficking. And I would also like to introduce our guest speaker for today, Associate Professor Dr. Sally Yeh. Now, Dr. Yeh is the 2021 Tracy Banivanwat Mar Fellow based in the Department of Social Inquiry at the Aubrey Wodonga campus at Latrobe University. And so she has research interests which span human trafficking, vulnerable migrations, and transnationalism. She has published widely on these subjects in journals that include the Geo Forum, Gender, Place, and Culture, Work, Employment, and Society, and Environment and Planning, and Political Geography. Her current research projects examine issues around geographies of transnational justice and return migration for transient migrant workers and victims of trafficking. Her second monograph titled Paved with Good Intentions Human Trafficking and the Anti-Trafficking Movement in Singapore uh, was published with the pa Palgrave Macmillan in 2019. So welcome, Sally, and thank you for being with us here today. Thank you, Ray. Thanks for that kind introduction. Um, first of all, I'd, I'd just like to start by making um, an acknowledgement to country. Um, the, the land upon which I live and work and write and present uh, is Wiradjuri country and so I'd like to acknowledge their ongoing connection to the land and to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'd and, also, yes. Oh please, sorry, to, just to uh, before you start, um, as we go on with our session uh, we will also have a Q&A section at, towards the end of our seminar so uh, for you, the audience, please feel free to use the Q&A function on the bottom of your screens and type in your questions as we're going along and also feel free to use the chat function. So continue on, Sally. Okay, thanks, Ray. Um, so I would also like to thank um, Latrobe Asia for supporting um, this really great idea of a seminar series, um, Philippines in Focus, and I hope that those seminars can continue next year. So so thank you to Ray. Thank you also to Diana for helping to organise and make these seminars possible and, and a seamless experience. Um, now, I'd, I'd also like to, before I actually begin the presentation, to thank um, the, the collaborators, uh, my Philippine collaborators, for this project. Um, in, in particular, I wanted to thank Ari Regino, who is my project coordinator based in Manila for his excellent research assistance work, which has been particularly important during COVID. Um, I'd also like to thank Arvin Peralta, who is um, the, uh, the kind of go-to person for the International Transport Federation Union based in Manila um, for his kind introduction to many of the participants um, in this current study and also to Father Paolo Prigol from Stella Maris in Manila who has also been really instrumental in supporting this project. Um, and finally, Attorney Dennis Gorecho, um, who is also involved as a collaborator in this project and provides pro bono legal support to victims of um, labour exploitation and forced labour in fisheries. Um, and the project that I'm speaking to today has been funded by La Trobe University from my Tracy Banavuana Ma Fellowship um, funds. So thanks also to La Trobe for, for providing financial support for me to be able to um, undertake this study. Now I'll turn now to the actual presentation um, and let's see, let's have a slideshow. Okay, I'm presuming everyone can see that okay. That's good. All right, so the, the talk today is research 
in progress. Um, it, it's not been completed yet. The first phase was done a few years ago, pre-COVID, and the second phase um, is currently underway. And the title of the talk, as Ari said, is Contingent Breadwinners, um, Precarious Livelihoods of Left-Behind Family Members of Filipino Victims of Trafficking. And, of course, the victims of trafficking that we are talking about um, in this study are uh, victims of trafficking in the long-haul fishing industry or fishing crew. Um, so... The, the talk today will follow um, the following outline um, and hopefully I'd actually like to get through it in half an hour so that we have a little bit more time for questions and discussions um, because it is, you know, ideas that are developing. I would really like some feedback um, and, you know, just perhaps some insights that maybe I've missed um, to, to have a broader conversation about the ideas that I'm developing through this research. So um, I will start by drawing out some of the conceptual and theoretical links um, from this study. And particularly, um, I'm situating the study in literature on transnational householding and gender dynamics in transnational householding of, you know, migrant sending families, and also in the literature on migrant worker precarity. Um, so I'll talk about that briefly. And then after that, give you a very quick overview of the study that um, I'm undertaking at the moment in the Philippines on this um, issue of seafood, seafood slavery. And then the main part of the presentation uh, talks about the experiences of left behind women as what I call contingent breadwinners. So that's the term that I came up with to describe their experiences. Um, and briefly then just some conclusions and reflections. So if we start by um, just looking at the literature that I'm situating this study in, um, as I said, there's a couple of areas that this project kind of intersects with. One is the literature on uh, transnational householding and migrant worker families and fam familial relationships across borders. So this um, literature in the social sciences is really quite extensive. There's a lot of work looking at the way that um, families are reconfigured in the context of uh, one family member migrating abroad for work. And, and so, you know, it's in, it's an interesting literature. Um, but it makes some, some really, I think, overarching assumptions that I think, um, are open to question when we talk about migrant workers who, for whatever reason, fail in their migration aspirations and goals. So, you know, the literature assumes, for example, that we have a single migrant breadwinner. So uh, the family makes a decision and it's either a male or a female uh, family member who goes overseas, uh, works and remits. Um, that's a standard assumption in the literature. Um, and so those left behind are considered the left behind family of that single migrant breadwinner. The literature also assumes uh, nuclear families, that there is a male head of the household, um, wife or partner, and possibly extended family and, and children or other dependents. And I think the, the thing that I take exception with most in this literature is that assumes that migration will be successful. Um, and when we talk about success, primarily here I'm talking about um, remittance practices, that migrants will be in a position to remit regularly and that those remittances will bolster um, the, the left-behind family um, and, and the household. So based on those assumption, assumptions, this literature on transnational householding um, argues that 
there, you know, there are negotiations over gender and gender roles, particularly if it's the, the woman who migrates for work. You know, men maybe have to take on um, domestic roles that can sometimes produce conflict and tension in the household. So that's one thing that this literature has looked at quite a lot. Um, and related to that, shifting positions in the household or changing household dynamics in the context of having uh, a migrant worker abroad. So, um, you know, I just find this literature really, in many ways, really actually very frustrating because it really downplays or almost completely ignores questions of migrant worker uh, precarity and exploitation in um, in the experiences of labour migration. So, you know, of course, this then is very relevant, these questions of exploitation um, to my research with uh, men who migrate as fishing crew and become subject to forced labour or human trafficking. So then that um, points us in the direction of uh, another body of literature in the social sciences on precarity in migrant households in Asia. And so it's here that I find some clues to help conceptualise and illuminate um, my empirical work in the Philippines. So we do have a literature now that talks uh, about migrant work worker precarity in the Asian region, um, you know, and based on a broader literature that suggests that migrant workers may be considered a hyper-precarious group um, because not only are they subject to flexible labour uh, conditions in the labour market, but because of uh, migration issues, contract issues and so on, they, they have limited rights in the migration destinations. So their precarity is compounded uh, precisely because they are migrant workers. So that is referred to as hyper-precarity. Um, there is a really great, a, a couple of really great um, articles or, or directions in this work on precarity in migrant workers. And this work looks back at what the implications are for human of human trafficking or forced labour for left-behind households. So Nathan Green from NUS in Singapore, his work is really quite um, instrumental in this. And he talks about the translocal dimensions of migrant worker precarity, so which he describes as the fragility of social reproduction strategies that migrant households employ across space. So in other words, when a migrant worker experiences precarity in their migration, how does that then produce uh, precarity or what implications does that have for these left behind households? And that's exactly the question that I wanted to ask in my research on uh, left behind family members in the Philippines. So his work has been uh, primarily in Cambodia. And then alongside um, this work on precarity in migrant households, we have these really interesting characterizations emerging in the in, in the geography literature on what, what are called destitution economies. And I find this really, really interesting. Um, so destitution economies are basically economies that emerge, um, that really take advantage of the poverty and the vulnerability that migrants find themselves in, in destination countries or in transit sites. So in other words, um, this literature is starting to look at the way that exploitation and precarity produce and reproduce precarity um, and that they are central to, you know, labour markets in transnational uh, migration destinations. So I think that, that that's really important for um, this discussion as well. So these are the ideas in the literature that have been informing um, my thinking about my empirical work. 
So um, the study then, um, it, the broader study on which this presentation is based uh, examines the dimensions of forced labour of migrant fishers, primarily from Cambodia and the Philippines. And I have a particular focus on return from forced labour situations and a focus on family and household precarity. So it's that second part of the study that I'm talking about today. Um, so the first phase of the fieldwork, as I said, was completed um, before COVID. And that involved interviews with 25 returned fishers, 18 in the Philippines, um, and oh, sorry, there's actually more there, <laughs> more than I've got. No, that number's wrong. So there's 18 in the Philippines, um, and they came mainly from um, Luzon and the Visayas region in the Philippines, um, and then also 22 Cambodian um, return trafficked fishers who lived mainly in squatter areas um, out on the outskirts of Phnom Penh. And that first phase of fieldwork also involved interviews with family members, three in the Philippines and 13 in Cambodia. Um, and as well as that, I conducted a household survey of 40 households um, in, in one high-sending um, migrant worker province in Cambodia, and that was mainly sending to Thailand. So. Um, the research was delayed inevitably, um, as many people's research is because of COVID. Um, the second phase of interviews I only really began this year in the Philippines. And so far, five fishers have been interviewed and three wives um, or three left behind family members. And further interviews are planned for um, early 2023 hopefully. <laughs> um, so let's turn now to um, the empirical material. I thought that I would just introduce um, the stories of three of the women um, that I've interviewed. And uh, the first one is from the original or the first phase of the field work. Um, so this woman, um, Maria, who in the picture is in the, the blue um, shirt, and she uh, lives in Batangas in uh, a rural area, a, a farming area, and her husband was um, trafficked to on a Taiwanese fishing vessel um, I met her husband in Singapore um, when he sought assistance uh, as a national in distress um, from the Philippine embassy there. So it, it it was so I interviewed the husband in Singapore and then um, with their permission was able to follow up with them um, on a on a trip to the Philippines. Um, to look at the situation of, of the families in the absence of the husband. So um, Maria said that it, it was very difficult for her to survive when her husband was away um, because in a very typical kind of um, situation, the, the men do not remit anything. So here we have again this, you know, this breakdown of this key premise in the literature on migrant householding that, you know, it's all based on remittance sending and um, successful migration stints. So for her husband, he, he was on board the vessel for 14 months um, and didn't go to shore, so there was no contact with the family. Um, and she never received any remittance during that time. Um, and she she actually didn't know what had happened to him. And, of course, he did not know that she was not receiving remittances either 
because he had no way of communicating with her. So um, you can imagine what kind of situation or position that put her in. She she really didn't know what was going on. So in his absence, uh, she had to find a way to survive. And she she has kids. Um, So this is a quote from her interview. When my husband was away, no money, salary remittance ever came from the agency. I have two children to feed and school. And I was not working because we planned to rely on my husband's income. I live in my husband's village and my own family is far away in another province. So they cannot help me with anything. I'm too embarrassed to ask them for money. So I started cultivating some of the land and we just ate most of our food from that. With the extra produce I sold at market, I bought rice and some essential things needed for the children. Every day um, I would walk down to their school um, and bring them lunch that I made because I couldn't afford to pay for their lunches. So um, in her experience, there, there there were no opportunities for paid work where she lived because she was in a rural area she she had limited formal education uh, and so the only alternative for her was to start to uh, subsistence farm and then you know supplement the family income through trying to sell some of that produce at market um, so that's one particular strategy that is very common to women who are left behind. And I also found the same thing with some of the Cambodian women um, when their husbands were were abroad and not remitting. Now, um, the next two case studies uh, or women that I draw on here um, are from the more recent or, or the current phase of the field work. And these two women, um, both, so I've given their full names here, they, they've they both um, been uh, cited in the media. Their stories have appeared in the, the Philippine media. Um, and the reason for that is because the, they were trying to pressure the manning agency that recruited their husbands um, to to pay them the owed salary. So they they decided to come out and and tell their stories in the media. So um, I interviewed them separately from the media stories. um, But this here is a quote from uh, one of the media stories that came out um, about Angelica. So it goes, she's desperate. She is alone with her two young children while her partner is at sea on a Chinese fishing vessel. He's been away for four months. In all that time, his family has not seen him, nor a single peso of his pay, a portion of which is supposed to be sent to them by Angelica's partner's manning agent. We have two kids who need milk and diapers and other basic items, she told the uh, ITF. But we have not received an allotment and it's four months since he joined the vessel. I need money for my 10-month-old baby and my three-year-old boy. So um, that was the reporting of her story in um, the media in the Philippines. So the question then is, well, how did she survive? So to flesh out some of the details of her experience, um, she's actually a college graduate. She's received her bachelor's in hotel um, and resort management. And she was working as a regular employee in the operations department of a supermarket in Manila. Um, But even though she, interestingly, even though she in the family was the regular income earner and actually the main income earner before her husband joined the fishing vessel, Um, she and her husband both considered him to be the main breadwinner. Um, Now, her two children were being raised by her parents back in Mindoro, which is in Luzon. Um, 
And she and her her partner um, rented a small room in Manila where they both worked. So they were internal labour migrants and they remitted salary back to her parents to help support the children and and the parents. Um, Now, her husband didn't remit any money um, for the eight months that he was on board the fishing vessel. She continued to work in Manila and she said that she only ate instant noodles and eggs the entire time because she had to cut costs. Eventually, she had to borrow money from relatives. Thankfully, there was no interest on those loans. She also took out a low interest loan from her employer in Manila um, to the value of 40,000 pesos, which is about 680 US dollars. She also pawned some of her jewellery given to her by her sister. Her husband was promised a salary of 450 US dollars a month, from which she was supposed to receive a regular allotment of $150 per month. Um, She also had no contact with her husband for the entire period he was on the vessel, so she couldn't explain to him that she had not received any uh, remittances or any allotment from the agency. So, um, you know, her method of surviving then was um, to to reduce her eating um, and to take out loans and to uh, continue working in Manila, even though the plan was for her to go back to Mindoro while her husband was on the fishing vessel because he was taking over the role as the main breadwinner. Um, So she actually hasn't paid back the 40,000 peso loan to her employer yet. And... The other um, experience, the other interview um, from this year is another woman who um, was actually, her husband was recruited by the same Manning agency as Angelica's um, husband. So again, there was some media reportage around her experience um, and it it reads in September, um, that is last year, the ITF published details about the case of Leslie Ann de Torres, the wife of a seafarer who had been unable to contact her husband for more than eight months by that time uh, and feared for his welfare. Um, so thanks to the ITF, um, her husband has been revealed to be alive and still working on board a Chinese-flagged fishing vessel. De Torres is now expected home later this month after the ship owner, rather than the Manning agency, insisted that he return. So, you know, same situation then. Um, in, in her case, uh, she said that her husband's original contract, um, like Angelica's husband, was $450 US a month, but the contract was substituted immediately prior to his departure from the Philippines um, and his new salary was reduced to $310 US a month um, and he was forced to sign an agreement that stated that he would only receive, his wife would only receive an allotment of $150 US a month. So essentially it's gone from $450 US to $150 US a month. And of course, at this time, Leslie was completely unaware of this change in um, the contract, contract substitution, because she had already lost contact with her husband. Um, And so $150, well, even if it's $310 a month, where is the other, where is the rest of that salary going? Fifty dollars is given to the fishermen as an allowance on the vessel, and um, the rest of the salary is put away by the Manning agency as a form of forced savings. And this has been going on actually for years. I documented this almost ten years ago with Filipino um, fishermen that um, the the Manning Manning agencies ask the fishers to sign agreements and substituted contracts 
and the agreements state that they will agree to forced savings and if they break their contract, they forfeit um, that forced savings. So in, in essence, it's a form of debt bondage. So anyway, um, for Leslie, she was entirely unaware of this. Um, so she had been expecting a, a much larger uh, remittance from her husband. Now, the vessel her husband was deployed on um, was supposed to um, dock after six months um, so she could then communicate with him. Um, but it failed to dock. So she had no way of understanding his situation. And in fact, she had no communication with him for over a year. Um, when her husband left, she was a full-time homemaker um, with extra income earned as a grade school tutor after he left. Um, but that really only amounted to a thousand pesos or so a month, not enough to support the family by any means. She lives with her parents um, plus her son. So in essence, she has three dependents to support in the absence of her, her husband um, sending remittances. She started to incur debts of between 3,000 and 5,000 um, Philippine pesos and um, uh, at least 20,000 pesos of her, the debts that she accrued remain unpaid at this time. Um, and the only way to pay this debt is for her husband to take another job um, abroad. So that in itself throws up some interesting questions about um, repatriation and reintegration um, and re-trafficking, which is the subject of another um, paper, I guess. So those are just some of the, the experiences of the women that, that I've interviewed. Um, and I'll finish, finish up in a minute um, so we can have a bit more of a discussion about this. So I want to tease out from these women's experiences this concept of contingent breadwinners. And, and so this idea I had comes from the literature on contingent work. Um, and contingent work is essentially employment arrangements where the worker has a non-traditional relationship with the employer characterised by flexibility, precarity, lack of protection, low irregular pay or remuneration for work performed. The rhythms of work are unpredictable, they're relational and responsive, and they're often frenetic and urgent. And they're gendered. Um, so a lot of the literature on precarious or contingent work pits women as constituting um, or, or being uh, subject to the highest risk of engaging in contingent or precarious work, um, particularly in labour migration. And contingent work also talks, the, the literature also talks about the cultural and the moral ethos of the erosion of personhood. So in other words, um, that the personal or familial responsibility um, becomes the norm. And, of course, we can understand that in the face of the rollback of social protections, particularly in an era of neoliberal capitalist um, globalisation. So, you know, this era that we're living in is, is shaping all these aspects of contingent work. So what I want to say then is that contingent work of these migrant fishers is a relational construct that produces um, contingent work within the household. And so, you know, the left-behind family members or the left-behind wives in this case also become contingent workers, um, not just the men who are, are being exploited on these fishing vessels. And the reason I have not chosen to call this contingent workers or contingent left behind workers is because I also want to tease out the fact that um, the strategies are not just about paid work or working for an employer, but they're also about using any means necessary um, to substitute 
for the absence of the male breadwinner. So, you know, you think about Maria and her um, her subsistence farming um, and you think about Angelica and Leslie and the, the borrowing um, of money, the loans that they have taken out. Um, and in Leslie's case, the pawning of assets. Um, and in Angelica's case, um, also, you know, the possible health implications for her of, of reducing her food intake or compromising her food intake to save money. So it's not just about work, finding work to make up for the lost remittances. It's about a range of different strategies that come together um, to, to kind of compensate for that um, lack of breadwinning role. So um, the conclusions then, or not really conclusions because it's ongoing work, um, I think the study extends some of the ways that we think about the literature on transnational householding. Um, the first one is introducing the complexities that precarity and failure present to transnational household dynamics. And so, you know, there's a lot more that could be done here in the Philippines and, and also there's some really good work, as I said, on this um, for the Cambodian context. I think we can also extend discussions of the way gender roles are reconfigured, not just as a result of successful migrations, but also through failed migration stints. So these women essentially become de facto breadwinners for their family. Um, and then, of course, as I've said, introducing this concept of the contingent um, breadwinner to help frame some of these um, alternative, alternative dynamics. And so maybe some questions that we can possibly throw up for future research in, in this area. Um, and, of course, you know, I would hazard a guess um, that, there are similar situations in many other Asian contexts, including Cambodia, Bangladesh and Indonesia, um, but of course not limited to those countries. And some of the questions that, that could guide future research in this field might include um, how are characterizations of destitution economies, um, how can they be furthered or further elaborated? by drawing on the insights from the study of contingent breadwinners um, and failed migrant workers. And can contingent breadwinners achieve analytical purchase in examining the situations of precarious migrants and their families in other contexts beyond the Philippines? Well, I think already we've started to establish um, that that is certainly the case in Cambodia. And how are other livelihood strategies such as selling of assets or reducing food intake folded into expressions of contingent breadwinning? And through what um, kind of research modalities can participants um, elaborate their situations and advocate um, for recognition of hyper-precarious uh, gendered, um, gendered norms? Um, and gendered strategies. So that's it for the presentation. I hope I didn't whiz through it too quickly, just in the interest of having some discussion and questions, and there's references there as well. So um, I guess you can contact myself or Ray or Diana if you'd like a copy of the, the PowerPoint presentation. Um, there is no no paper on it yet. It's in progress, but hopefully at some point um, early to mid next year, there'll there'll be a publication coming out um, based on this work. Wonderful. So well, thank, thank you. you so much for sharing, Sally. That was to me at least very insightful and hope for everybody else. And you know, I think this is definitely a really big issue, not just in the Philippines, but all over in the Southeast Asia region. Mm -hmm. um, especially my first experience and insight to your work was writing a story about your previous research about the uh, exploitation of men on the um, offshore fishing vessels. But um, I see that we have uh, questions from our audience. We have two questions here. 
So the first question is from Christian Wells um, asking, were any Filipino migrant workers affected by the recent spate of Chinese call slash cyber scam centers in Cambodia, largely based around Sinakuville, uh, that were that are involved in human trafficking, false imprisonment, and forced labor? And is this form of human trafficking likely to become more common in the Southeast Asia region? Uh, that's probably not a question that's related primarily to this talk. Um, so I, I wouldn't like to actually give an answer to that one because it's not something that I'm doing research on, um, unfortunately. So I think, you know, it would just be an anecdotal answer. So my apologies that I won't be able to answer that question in any detail. Perhaps some of the other participants would know more than me about that. Um, that's totally all right. But that is a good question to raise up and because, you know, it kind of um, dabbles into the human trafficking aspect of things as well. Um, so with that, uh, we'll move on to a sec the second question by Lisa Denny. Um, I'd be interested to know to what extent indebtedness that woman might enter into the cope while partner is migrating for work then encourages remigration within the household as a strategy to get out of indebtedness? Or do you do returners tend not to remigrate given their initial, initial experiences? Yeah, so in <clears throat> that's a good question. And that's something that I am looking at um, in this study. And um, unfortunately, quite sadly, most of the... Um, the, the 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 women that I interviewed and and their partners and other returned fishermen, um, some of them had already remigrated, um, mostly to work on fishing vessels, um, and indebtedness was one of the key yep. drivers of that out migration, um, return migration. And in discussions with um, the ITF in the Philippines and also Stella Maris in the Philippines, they see this um, as a very important and neglected issue. Um, the, the, the return and reintegration um, program for trafficked fishermen is really inadequate to... Um, to build the kind of financial resilience in these households to stop them engaging in future um, very precarious out-migration stints. So absolutely, um, this is incredibly common and it's something that I'm building uh, or trying to build a database on now. And in fact, it did affect the fieldwork for um, this second phase of the study because when we tried to contact some of the fishers, um, they'd already gone. They had already left to go back on fishing vessels, even after having these really horrendous experiences. And the same thing I, I did find with the Cambodian fishers that I interviewed a few years ago, many of them, the majority of them had remigrated to Thailand um, either to work on fishing vessels or some other form of, um, you know, low-skilled or low-valued employment. All right. Well, thank you for that um, answer, Sally. Um, I also would like to introduce you to the Philippine Consulate General, uh, Maria Lourdes Salcedo, who would like to um, give some of her comments about your presentation. Welcome, okay. Maria. Thanks, Ray. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you, Sally, for your study. I don't know how to uh, put this, but uh, I, I do have a great interest on trafficking and migration uh, since I became the uh, principal assistant of the Undersecretary for Migrant Workers back in uh, 1998 in the DFA. So I, I did uh, join the... Uh, uh, the group which looked into situations of trafficking 
in the lead up to the uh, passing of the bill of the legislation in the Philippines. But uh, the stories you shared this afternoon, uh, they're not out of the ordinary. You know, it's like uh, almost a norm. Uh, whether uh, the husbands or the, the male partners uh, become uh, traffic and enter into a destitution uh, way of livelihood, the women have always been contingent breadwinners. Uh, bread mm -hmm. So uh, I think the story more is like how resilient are uh, uh, women running their families uh, in spite of what happens to, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, the family. But, uh, you know, listening to you saying that uh, we, sh you should, we should uh, reform uh, the way or we should warn uh, our uh, workers not not to get into uh, uh, this kind of livelihood. It's easier said than done mm -hmm. because you know we, we have a saying in Filipino that kapit uh, sapatalim. It's like if you don't have anything uh, to to put on the table for your family to eat, you know you you hang on to to the knife you know literally mm. you hang on to the blade so that's how how it is uh with with, with the, this um kind of situation so mm -hmm. uh listening to uh your study it, it it's more like uh, how would i put it uh, it, it it's more like it's very condescending sorry sorry to say this one but it sounds to me as very condescending. It's easier to say that, uh, you know, uh, the Philippines and Cambodia, we have a big part of our population under poverty. But uh, I think the, the research should look into how to resolve this. How can we reform these owners of fishing vessels not to practice um, slave-like conditions in their um, business? You know, because they are the ones who have the means to, because they have the capital and they have the power, economic power in their hands. And, and, and you know, these uh, poor people who want to earn um, for their family become, uh, well, you can say willing victims often because mm -hmm. they, they, they would like to... Um, to give uh, food for their family. So I think research should be more geared towards addressing uh, how businesses could reform themselves, how businesses could be more ethical in, uh, in hiring these people and, 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 and not uh, um, you know, uh, victimizing these poor uh, people in, in um, especially from the regional areas. So I think uh, I would stop there and uh, I hope uh, you can tweak your research a bit or maybe um, expand it sometime and look at how we can reform and how we can get the businesses to be more ethical in their ways. Thank you. Mm. Had I respond to that? Right? Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you so much for that that comment. And, and in fact, um, that is that is definitely part of this research. Um, so I was in Manila a couple of weeks ago and did some key informant interviews with um, several people who are involved in supporting returned um, trafficked fishermen. And um, I think so there are two types of businesses that are really benefiting from the exploitation of these Filipino men's labor. Um, one are the, the the foreign fishing companies, the, the fleets, which are usually Taiwanese or Chinese, sometimes um, South Korean, and um, the Filipino registered manning and recruitment agencies. Um, so, you know, I was definitely looking at how these manning agencies could be held accountable um, to, to make sure that um, the fishermen that they deployed on these vessels were being protected, um, to make sure that 
their contracts were not being substituted, when in fact it's actually the Philippine Manning agencies that were substituting the contracts. So there are different, I guess there are lots of different elements to um, the exploitation of these men, some that has to do with contract fraud and debt bondage um, and others that have to do with labour exploitation and forced labour on the fishing vessels themselves and violence um, and abuse of the fishers. Uh, so looking at how the, the manning agencies can be held accountable, um, how civil claims can be pursued by fishermen and their advocates to be able to uh, to to get their salaries that um, have been owed to them. So cons uh, restitution and compensation claims can be successfully pursued. I think those are really actually very important um, ways forward because if they were able to get their owed salary, many of them, um, well, who knows, but maybe a few of them at least, um, would not be pushed to or compelled to go abroad again through very constrained um, choices. So, so that's definitely something that um, I'm continuing to look at in, in the research as well. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, uh, Maria, for your feedback and comments as well, and Sally for providing your insight on how you would like to proceed with your research following those comments. Um, following on or going on to uh, the fishermen's salaries, um, we have a question from Fiona Russell in chat asking, are there any statistics on the number of fishers that actually receive the payment or the, the, their salaries that is put aside for them at the end of their contract? See. Sorry, can you read the question again? I can't sure. see it there. Uh, are there any statistics on the number of fishers that actually receive their salaries that is put aside for them at the end of their contracts? No, there's there's nothing like that. Um, and in fact, I am working with um, the ITF and Stella Maris to to establish um, a database because they are the two organisations, at least in the Philippines, along with one other, that are really um, supporting the fishermen on their immediate return to the Philippines. So mm. um, it, it, it's absolutely important, it's crucial that that kind of database with that information and other statistics be established because without that knowledge, it's very difficult for us to have an evidence base to, um, to look at how policies might be changed or how NGOs might better support um, these fishermen. So there's nothing like that, that that exists, unfortunately. Yes, yeah, and I think that's a good point in that having those statistics and data could help create like a blueprint at least to look for, look on to and then see how um, you know organizations can provide support for these families. Mm -hmm. um, now we have a question from Daryl asking how would you regard the performance of the POEA with regard to the bad treatment of OFWs in various countries? Um, well the the it's difficult again. I don't. I don't really want to fob off questions, but it's it's actually quite difficult to answer that question at the moment because the POEA is currently undergoing restructuring and being reformed in the Philippines. Uh, a new migrant worker ministry with various, you know, that umbrella and various um, departments and components under that. So. At the moment, um, it's very much in flux. And so when I was in the Philippines a couple of weeks ago, I I actually didn't uh, do any government interviews um, because these issues about responsibility and how uh, mechanisms to ensure safe migration can be improved um, 
were were very much still being worked out and very much um, under consideration. I mean, one of the great things that the Philippines does, which many other countries in the Asian region don't do or don't do very well, is the Philippines has often very, very proactive labour attaches and um, assistance to nationals attaches um, at its embassies. And um, these are really, really, in my experience, um, these these actors are absolutely crucial um, in supporting um, overseas Filipino workers who've experienced um, exploitation in in their migrations. So Mm. um, I, I guess, you know, everybody's kind of waiting to see how this new infrastructure of migration support will play out in in the Philippines. Mm. And hopefully... uh, May I add, uh, Ray? Sure thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sally was right that uh, there's a new department for migrant workers and POEA will come under that. Uh, The problem with POEA at the moment is it's proactively promoting overseas employment at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, our migrant workers, uh, they face a lot of problems. So we have the OWA, but uh, uh, yeah, we don't know yet how this, these two agencies will play out in the new uh, Department of Migrant Workers Affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a proactive, as mentioned by Sally, uh, uh, assistance to nationals and uh, currently, uh, personnel from the Department of Foreign Affairs, like myself, right? Uh, we we have a responsibility to look after those in distress because we have a special law which cri- criminalizes, you know, um, uh, diplomats like us who who will not extend assistance to those mm-hmm. in distress. So it it's. Uh, promotion uh, and protection of the welfare of uh, Filipino migrant workers is a uh, pillar of uh, Philippine foreign policy. So it's very important to us. Mm. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that, Maria. And that's really encouraging to know that that is part of the foreign policy, meaning that there will be support for those that, um, you know, who need it. Um, so, uh, we have uh, three more questions. Let's see how how we go with them with the time remaining. Um, So from Leon Carlo Aquino uh, asks, hello, uh, I noticed that the case studies here revolve around sea-based occupations, which I notice creates an added level of precarity. Would you have any insight into how the situations might differ for migrant workers in land-based occupations? Yeah, so um, I have done research with... um, Filipino migrants uh, who've migrated as entertainers um, and also as foreign domestic workers um, in Singapore and in South Korea. Um, And so in those cases, um, interestingly, when we talk about the nuclear family kind of ideal, you know, that perhaps the in this in these cases, the female, uh, the wife or the mother migrates, um, but you know the same the same pattern where where there is um, exploitation or where there's there's trafficking, um, the same situation where where the women are not in a position to remit. Um, what I found that is. Uh, distinct in the experiences of women and on these land-based sectors is that many of these female migrants uh, came from single-headed families or they were single mothers, for example. So the dynamics of what might happen with the left-behind family can be quite different from um, the case of the, the fishermen. Um, I, I mean, that's not always the case, but um, for, for many women, uh, it was parents who uh, were taking care of um, their children um, and the, they, were, they were separated or they were single mothers. Um, so that introduced a very different dynamic into these discussions about left behind families. 
Um, and and also, I mean, one thing that's common to the male migrants in the fishermen and also to female migrants in land-based sectors is um, the, the experience, the emotional experience of stigma and shame. Um, so rather than there being differences, that that was a commonality. And I've actually published um, something on that, that that looks comparatively at fishermen and um, women in these other sectors and their experiences of shame and stigma um, through failed migration and how that plays out once they actually return home. Mm. I won't say any more to that just because I'm conscious of the time. That's all right. Um, and I would also like to suggest, Ian, if you want to get in touch with Sally, please feel free to do mm. so and she'll be more than happy to send you that study. Um, I suggest we'll go with one more question by Diana Savina Hatajulu. I hopefully am not pronounced, hopefully I'm pronouncing your, your name all right. Um, and the question is, are there any support from local community groups or provision from government programs that supports the economic empowerment of the women of contingent breadwinners? Yeah, so that that's also a really important question. Um, so, the the organisations that that I mentioned at the start um, that support um, migrant seafarers and migrant fishers do provide um, su- financial support to uh, the the left behind women and also to the fishermen. Um, but I guess the the issue there is that uh, this support is often very short term, and the the money is not um, a lot. <laughs> it's just um, you know very small amounts, and it often just uh, supports the actual return home. So once they reach the Philippines, returning transportation to back to their home and you know, a small amount of money um, apart from that. So that there's definitely um, uh, a need for better supports, financial supports to um, assist with reintegration, successful reintegration. But, of course, that is not just an issue that um, faces the Philippines. I mean, every country in this region um, uh, faces the same challenges with with re- successful reintegration and how how to achieve it and the financialization and the capacity to actually um, realize that is 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 very difficult. Indeed, um, I agree with that in terms of you know really looking at the reintegration part um, from coming um, yeah reintegration into the land is really you know a big part and having support for that for the families and the migrant workers is. It definitely crucial. Um, let's go for one more last question. This is from an uh, anonymous attendee. Uh, how common is it for the grandparents to be the primary caregivers of their grandchildren while both parents are away working overseas or in urban centers in the Philippines? And is it more common in certain regions of the Philippines? Um, yes, it, it is. It is very common um, for both parents to migrate either internally or overseas for work. Um, But it's only common where, you know, the situation allows for that. Um, In other words, where there there are parents living close by who are willing to to take on that caregiving role um, of the children. Um, And often even where only one family member migrates, often the the wife, Um, it's still common for parents uh, or grandmother, for example, to take on a very big caring role for um, grandchildren, even if the husband is is still at home because quite often he may work um, as well or be unwilling to take on um, all of those domestic um, responsibilities. There's been some very interesting work on this issue in Cambodia, again, looking at the implications um, and and the mental and physical health of children 
who are cared for by ageing parents when both uh, parents, uh, sorry, ageing grandparents when both parents migrate abroad, abroad for work. Um, and the the conclusions of that research for Cambodia are, are really uh, quite sad in a way. Um, the, the the children are often um, ostracised at school, withdrawn. Many of them, um, you know, suffer from um, or are the subject of bullying. And so there are emotional and, and mental health aspects to this transnational householding that I think um, are definitely worth exploring in more detail both in the Philippines and and elsewhere. Um, yeah, thank you, Sally, for that. And I think that is a great pathway to, you know, what you can work on for the future of your research. Um, we just have, before we go, uh, we just have one more comment from Berlin uh, Guerrero. Hopefully I'm pronouncing your name correct. Uh, hi, Sally. I met you in Wodonga in 2014. Um, I believe the em emergence of contingency breadwinners in the Philippines is more of the result of, one, the need for international fishing companies for cheap labor, and two, the need for the sending country for dollar remittances to buy you up an economy in cri chronic crisis. This means the export of labor is a government such policy program as highlighted by the creation of the Department of Foreign Employment. Yes. Uh, hi, Berlin. Yes, I remember. From <laughs> Aubrey Wodonga. <laughs> um, yeah, as, as uh, Maria also said, the, it's, it's very difficult, you know, at, particularly at the moment with um, the kind of post-COVID crisis um, that many economies are finding themselves in, there is this um, th this dual policy of, um, you know, the need for remittances um, and the reliance on remittances. Um, but on the other hand, the the dilemma or the difficulty of counterbalancing that with um, the high risks of exploitation of migrant workers in certain sectors, and and of course the fishing industry is one of one of those sectors. Um, so, you know, I, I guess hopefully the new Ministry of Migrant Workers will be able to better balance um, those those two issues. Um, but I don't know how they're going to do it because it, it's definitely a very challenging um, challenging task. I think to address that. Mm. Um, well, uh, to end our seminar, I just want to thank you, Sally, again for sharing your work with us. And thank you, everyone, for submitting your questions, very insightful questions, and also Maria for your insightful uh, feedback on Sally's work. I apologize, we did go over time, but I believe our discussion was very worthwhile. Um, so thank you again um, for the seminar. Uh, and just I want to remind you, everyone, that this webinar has been recorded. So if you have signed up using your email, you will receive the appropriate links when they are available. There is a video and audio recording um, that will be out soon. And also, please follow us on Twitter at Path Latrobe and at Latrobe Asia, or join our mailing list to find out more about our online activities and events. So once again, thank you very much, everyone. And thank you, Sally. And I wish you all a great afternoon.